man, that line, there's nothing in the heart of man that superintends God's will. <laughs> That's one of those things that we believe in our head, but our fretting, like Walt was saying, constantly uh, betrays that, doesn't it? It tells us that we don't really often believe that, that somehow God's purposes are, are f- going to fail in some way. Um, let's just take that thought to prayer here as we consider our, our passage this morning. Lord, it says in Isaiah, you say in Isaiah, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there's none like me who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel will stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. Humble us here this morning, Lord. Help us kindly gently remind us that our worry and our fretting is a vote of no confidence in our heart at the truth of those verses. Lord, your purposes are going to stand every last one in the end. Lord, we thank you that we can look to the cross when we forget this, that through the most evil thing that we've done on this earth, crucifying the Lord of glory, who came to seek and save us. What we meant for evil, you meant for good. And you're going to work out every last good purpose that Jesus won at the cross in this world. And we won't get to the end until you've finished them all. So Lord, this morning we submit ourselves and our tiny little lives before you and your greatness this morning. Thank you that you have good purposes to accomplish in us that haven't come to completion yet, and you have good purposes you want to accomplish through us, that you want to use us to bring about. Help us to follow where you lead, be used the way you want to use us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the last two Sundays, we've been in this series, Making Disciples. We have today and and next Sunday as well, so four weeks to consider this call of Jesus to his church to be disciples who make disciples. And uh, I'm a visual learner. Anyone else in here visual learners? It's really helpful to see something. Betsy has learned this over the years. She knows that it's worthless to try to talk to me about planning calendar stuff for the next week if I don't have my calendar open right in front of me. She will be driving sometimes. She'll forget. And she'll start saying, now on Monday this, and I'm like, I I, got to look at the calendar. I got to see it in front of me. So for all you visual learners, I want to help you here. Um, Can you put that image up? took this image from the book, The Vine Project, and I tweaked it a bit, changed it a little bit to sort of fit more clearly how we've been communicating the last couple of Sundays. But um, this image is helpful for me as far as where we've been so far. So week one, Jackson preached and considered the question, why make disciples? What is disciple making all aiming toward? What's the end goal? And the end game, as you see where that arrow is pointing, is over there on the right side of this image is this picture of an eternal future where God has redeemed a people who had rebelled against him in sin, but he rescued them from the dominion of darkness, transferred them into the kingdom of his beloved son, and one day is going to return, like in the songs we sang, to rule and reign with his people, worshiping him forever. That's where all human history is headed And we can either be there in that picture one day or we cannot be in that picture one day. That's why it's so crucial. 
We want to be part of what God's doing to rescue more and more people out of bondage to sin, domain of darkness, and be part of his kingdom with Jesus. So that's that sort of end part of the diagram right there. And you notice there's this continuum, right? The domain of darkness goes through the whole thing. And so people start, all, every one of us, we're born in our sin and we need to be rescued out of the dominion of darkness. But notice in that little diagram on the other side of the cross, which represents someone coming to faith in Christ and beginning to walk as a disciple, the domain of darkness still goes on and now we as his children, as his church, continue to live as an outpost of the kingdom of the sun now until Jesus comes and, and makes that permanent. But notice then what Eric preached about last week is what is a disciple? Well, disciples are forgiven sinners. They're people who God has rescued out of darkness and now have become lifelong learners depending on and being transformed by Jesus. And this is a process and a progression. We, we have, none of us have arrived. We are growing. Uh, first, Second Corinthians 3.18 says, from one degree of glory to another, God is renewing the image of his son in us. So that's where, we're, where we've covered so far. This morning, our goal is to think about how disciples are made. By what means does God rescue and transform people like this? Keep that picture up for one last thing. I've had a song stuck in my head since last week and, and Eric is preaching and thinking about all these things. I think it's from the late 90s, from Passion Worship, uh, uh, Charlie Hall, I think. Uh, Into Marvelous Light. Does anybody remember that song? Into Marvelous Light, I'm running. I'm not gonna sing the whole thing. But I wanna read you the lyrics because it beautifully captures the big picture of what we're about here this month. I once was fatherless, a stranger with no hope, but your kindness wakened me. It awakened me from my sleep. Your love, talking to Jesus, it beckons deeply a call to come and die. By grace now, I will come and take this life. I'll take your life. Sin has lost its power. Death has lost its sting. From the grave, you've risen victoriously. And then here's the refrain, and here's where we're at this morning if you're a disciple. Into marvelous light, I'm running out of darkness, that's behind us, out of shame by the cross. You are the truth. You are the life. You are the way. So this morning, let's think, how is God leading his disciples step by step into marvelous light? Turn to the book of Mark, chapter 4, if you would. Mark's gospel. Mark 4 Jesus tells this short and simple little parable to his disciples about how his kingdom's gonna grow. Another way of saying that is how disciples are gonna get made. And I want us to read this little parable and consider how I think um, it captures um, how God is gonna make disciples through his church and see how that actually plays out throughout the book of Acts and on into the life of our church today. Mark 4, 26 through 29. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade and then the ear, and then the full grain in the ear. 
But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So I want to put up another little definition here this morning to kind of guide what we're going to talk about this morning. Can you put that up on the screen? Again, I adapted from the Vine Project, tweaked a little bit here, but essentially the definition, and I really like this. It's got four elements to it this morning we're going to think about. How are disciples made? Disciples are made by the patient, persevering proclamation of the word of God by the people of God in prayerful dependence on the spirit of God. So four pieces here. It it happens through the proclamation of the word of God and it happens by the people of God. How do we do that? In prayerful dependence upon God's spirit and we do it with patient perseverance. I think all of those are packed into this little parable and we especially see these in the way that 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 parable bursts into life in the early church in the book of Acts. So let's look. Number one, I want us to think about proclamation. Disciples are made by the proclamation of the word of God. You might be thinking, hold on it, duh. That's the most basic thing I've known since I was a a young Christian. Nothing this morning that I'm going to say is going to be surprising to you, I don't think. (laughs) These are very basic things that we just forget and and we can lose sight of or we can uh, deprioritize behind all of the busyness of our life and agenda. So nothing novel or new here. But Disciples are made by the proclamation of the word of God. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a man scattering seed on the ground. So let's think about scattering seed here for a minute. Seed is the word of God. You can take that uh, definition down there. Thank you. The seed is the word of God. I mean, Jesus in the parable just before had said um, in this parable of the soils that the seed is the word of God. But turn to the end of uh, Luke chapter 24 for a minute because Jesus says something a little bit more specific about the seed that the disciples were going to scatter to the ends of the earth. Luke 24 is sort of Luke's, um, I was going to say version of, and it's, it's sort of a similar great commission moment like we read in the end of Matthew, but at the end of Luke, it might have been in a different occasion, but shortly before Jesus ascends into heaven, he says to his disciples, starting in verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations." beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Notice two things that tells us about the seed that's gonna be scattered through which God's gonna build his kingdom. First of all, it can be summed up in that simple little phrase. What are they to go and preach to all the nations? Repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. So the seed can be summarized, sort of the the point of the spear is that ultimate message that repentance and forgiveness of sins can be found in Jesus' name. But notice he also says that the entire Bible proclaims that message. 
He sits them down again and he takes them back to the law of Moses and the Psalms and the prophets and he shows them throughout all of the Old Testament. It was all pointing toward him. It's all preparatory and revelatory to help the world understand and and recognize who Jesus is and then receive him for the Savior and Lord that he is. And we add to that the New Testament, which are the gospel accounts and the the epistles, the letters written by the prophets and by the apostles, which all help explain and and, and, sh- and reveal Jesus to us so that we, generations later, based on the, their eyewitness accounts, we can also encounter the risen Jesus. And all of it, the entire Bible, the whole counsel of God is the seed as it magnifies Jesus and points us to him and calls us to repentance and faith in the forgiveness of our sins. So now I want us to think back to our definition of disciple Eric gave us last week. A disciple is a lifelong learner of Christ, a forgiven sinner who learns from, depends on, and is transformed by Christ. That happens through the seed, through the proclaimed word of God, the whole counsel of God helping and aiding our eyes to get on Jesus. So we're, it's seed. But he, the, the parable says then we're supposed to scatter it. It gets scattered. That's a great image of seed distribution. It's not an image of this. Right? It's not, it's not a, a frugal means of distributing seed, right? Scattering is this image of just getting it everywhere. Uh, last year, our back lawn was getting brown, and so we decided to reseed it, so we bought one of those little wheeling, pushing grass seed spreaders, and it's cool. It has a big hopper, and you fill it with grass seed, and you pull back a little lever on the handle, and it opens this gate up, and as it rolls, little fan blades, maybe you've used these, it just sprays in a huge 180-degree fan-like water seed. It just goes everywhere, even in places you're not trying to get it. It just gets it everywhere. So the image in this parable is it's like a man who scattered seed, just threw it everywhere. The parable before, a parable of the soils, makes that point. It lands a lot of places that it has a hard time growing. But we don't, we don't distribute seed in light of how we know different soils are going to be. We just scatter it, right? We don't go, oh, I don't think seed's going to plant there. Ah, I think seed's going to get choked out there. No, we just, just saturated with the word of God. Lots of it. Um, this is what we see in the book of Acts. We see th- th- these 12 disciples and then the early church see just scatters out from Jerusalem out toward the ends of the earth. It starts at Pentecost. Peter preaches. He stands up and he says, men of Israel, hear these words. And here comes the seed. And he preaches this message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And he preaches that message out of passages from the Old Testament that pointed forward to Jesus. And he gets the whole crowd very clear on the point that this Jesus of Nazareth, God who became man, you crucified him and put him to death on a cross. But he rose again from the dead and they're cut to the heart. (gasps) And they say, what must we do to be saved? And that day, 3,000 souls are added, it says. 3,000 brand new disciples. God rescues from the dominion of darkness and transfers them into the kingdom of his son on that day. But scattering seeds, not just how new disciples are born, but then it's how new disciples grow. If you look in, in Acts 2, immediately following Peter's sermon, and you've got these 3,000 brand new baby Christians, and what do they do? 
Verse 42, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers and awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and they had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad, generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And look what happened. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It starts with devotion to the apostles' teaching being a lifelong learner of Christ and not just head knowledge, but in a way that leads you to depend more on him and be transformed by, and you see the transformation that was happening as they were devoted to the the word of God here. And I imagine they weren't just getting one sermon a week from the apostles and that was all the, the seed scattering, but this picture of them now living together day by day, being in each other's homes, still being out in public at the temple where their Jewish brothers and sisters were who had not yet believed in Christ. And I imagine seed was being scattered all throughout this, not just formal, you know, teacher, uh, learner sort of setting, but person to person. And not only did the Christians grow up, but the Lord kept adding to their number. It all happens as the word is proclaimed. Something else I want us to see in the book of Acts. Turn to Acts chapter 8. It's not just the apostles who are scattering seed. It's everybody. In chapter 8, persecution breaks out. Stephen is martyred for his faith. And after this, this sort of wave of persecution lands on the church in Jerusalem. And it says they were all scattered throughout regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. That's interesting. They all scatter except for the apostles. Look down at verse four. So the apostles stay put in Jerusalem. All these new disciples are running with their families, fleeing for their lives, and they're not being timid. Verse four says, as they were, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This first generation of new disciples were running for their lives and scattering seed as they went. As God scattered them, by means of persecution that he was sovereign and over and was accomplishing some of his purposes, the new disciples scatter seed. One more thing from Acts that I, I love noticing this week. Um, periodically in, in, in Acts, Luke will pause and give these little progress report updates on how is disciple making going. And each time... The word of God is the subject of the sentence. It's the word of God that is accomplishing these uh, progress updates. Listen to Acts 6, 7. He pauses and he says, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Keeps spreading out wider. Chapter 12, verse 22, the word of God increased and multiplied. Chapter 13, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. In Acts 19, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I love that phrase. The word of God was spreading, and as it was spreading, it was accomplishing its powerful work. It was prevailing upon the hearts of people, sinners. So disciples multiply where the word of God increases and spreads and prevails. And so if we long at grace to see God adding new disciples into his kingdom who become part of his local church family here, that we get to help then grow in Christ. And if we want to see each and every one of us growing in Christ, 
We need to be a word-saturated people, and I think we are, but we want to increase still more. It's not just Sunday school class. It's not just through a sermon on a Sunday morning. It's, it's everywhere. You know, this morning as we met to pray with our elder team, before we got to praying, we were just swapping stories of even in the last couple of weeks, um, ways that we've been hearing different people at Grace are taking initiative to just create an intentional time for some seed to get scattered. Like Rick Floyd just on Thursday night decided to start up every other Thursday night, a small group of men coming over to his backyard to study the life of David as as a means of uh, reading some of the Psalms that he wrote. And he had their, their first one on Thursday night. Junior was telling us that last night or Friday night, there was a giant steak, steak night in uh, a backyard with 30 guys, some from Grace, some not from Grace, just eating good steak. And Junior bringing a word from First Peter just for a few minutes. Or this, the women's one-to-one Bible studies, that this, the, the gathering, by the way, just so you're clear, is a gathering to, to communicate the vision of it, explain what it is, and then invite women at Grace to consider finding another woman and saying, could we commit for a period of time to read a, past, a section of Scripture together and, 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 and talk about it and pray about it? It's as simple as that. But this is what we need. We want to see flourish at Grace as many instances as possible of the Bible being spoken, read, studied, preached, explained, taught, prayed over, meditated on. This is how disciples are made. Secondly, though, they're made by the proclamation of the word of God, but amazingly, God has chosen to do this through the people of God as his fellow workers. The parable says, we might skip right over it, the kingdom of God is as if a man scatters seed. In the parable, the man, the farmer, the sower, is we are the farmer in, in the picture. He, he represents us, disciples, his church, the ones who scatter seed. We're God's fellow workers. That's a great phrase. Paul uses it, 1 Corinthians 3. As they're all arguing in this church about which leader is greater, which preacher is better, he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? We're servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. And then he says, we are God's fellow workers. That phrase this week, as I've been thinking about it, that should amaze us and humble us. The God of all creation, who needs nothing, who's perfectly self-sufficient, has chosen to do his redeeming work in the world through us as his fellow workers. He says, I want you to be my partner. I could do this all on my own, but I want to do it through you. He invites us in to be fellow workers with God. It should, it should hit us as an incredible privilege and not a burden that we, in the middle of the week, think, oh, I should be doing something to make disciples. <laughs> oh, you look at your calendar. I just got too much going on this week. Uh, we should see this as an honor. God's invited us to be part of his team and to actually have us suit up and, like Jackson said to our new members class this weekend, get in the game, put us out in the field and use us in some way to work through us. It's amazing. Next Sunday, Randy's going to spend the whole morning thinking more specifically about how in the context of a local church with its different gifts and roles, um, how do we collectively then scatter seed in kind of a complementary way. But this morning, I just want to say one point about this people thing and God working through us. The command to make disciples is a command to do something impossible by ourselves. 
when Jesus says to disciples, go make disciples, that is impossible if not for the fact that Jesus says all authority in, on heaven, in heaven and on earth is mine and I will be with you always to the end of the age. It's an impossible command apart from divine intervention. That's what the miracle with the fish was a whopping object lesson for Peter and James and John and for us to, what it, he, he says right after Peter says, Master, we toiled all night and we took nothing. I mean, we're fishermen. We, we've done this before. But we spent all night, we used all our tricks, all our knowledge. We went to all the places we know fish were be. We came empty. And right then Jesus says, check this out. Put your nets out one more time. Okay, Lord, we'll do it. And they can't even, they fill two boats with fish. They can't even haul it all in. And it's right in that moment as they're looking at that image, Jesus says, let's go catch men. Of course, it's a reminder. We're, I'm going to call you to do something that you can't do in your own power. With all, you know, it's not about just getting the right discipleship plan and the right mission statement and vision and, and all that. We think these are important tools, but at the end of the day, these things are just tools to help us have an idea concrete in our head and then get after it. But at the end of the day, we are utterly dependent upon God to make disciples. He does this work through us. Which leads to the third point is disciples are made in prayerful dependence upon the Spirit of God. And the parable where I see this sort of implicit is the farmer, he scatters seed and then it says the seed sprouts and grows. I love this. He knows not how. I mean, wait a minute. So a farmer obviously knows how. I mean, if he's a farmer, that's his vocation, right? He probably knows what kind of seed to plant to get the plant that you want and where to plant it and how to plant it. So it's not that the farmer knows nothing, but what's the point in the parable? That at the end of the day, even though the farmer can be a really good farmer, there's something going on in a seed that suddenly sprouts forth life and then grows into a unique vegetable that that farmer, that's above his pay grade, a few years ago, I was studying this passage and I emailed Jason Tresser, who's a member here. Are you here, Jason? Oh, it's always bad when you call. Oh, first service. Are you? Outside. Hi, Jason. Anyway, so Jason Tresser's outside. Biology professor at Biola, and he oversees and runs the organic garden at Biola, which is amazing. They grow these amazing vegetables and fruits and flowers and stuff. And so I emailed him and just said, Jason, even now, you know, centuries after this parable with all the scientific, you know, biological knowledge and horticultural, you know, is it still true that we, we know not how? Listen to what he said. He said, while there are volumes and volumes of books and research papers that describe what we know, we still don't quite know how germination happens. How does the cell know when it's moist enough or warm enough? How do cells decide to become roots or shoots or how many times to divide? How do roots know to grow down and shoots know to grow up? And how do plants know when it's day or night? Why do some need a freeze and others don't? How do cells know to organize themselves together in a wide lettuce leaf or in a long slender leaf of corn? For every answer we can give, there follows 10 more new questions we can ask, each one leading to a progressively smaller and more detailed level of understanding. But the point is, there's something going on in there that even though we can explore and discover and observe and learn, there's something going on in there with life growing in a seed that we know not how. 
But Jesus' point is to take that idea and say, he's talking about how disciples are made and how disciples grow. He's talking about regeneration, someone who's dead in Christ coming to life in Christ, and then sanctification, someone alive in Christ. How do they grow to maturity? And he's saying in the same way that the farmer knows not how that's done with seed, we don't know how that's done. At the end of the day, that's something only God can do in a human life. Paul said it this way, I planted, Apollos watered, but what? God gave growth. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. The way it is with seeds is the way it is with souls. Yesterday, uh, Friday and Saturday, we did our last new members class. And uh, Saturday morning, we take a session and we read through our statement of faith. What do we believe here? What is the one faith? And it hit me in a fresh way as we read the statement on what we believe about the Holy Spirit, how true this is that we are utterly dependent on the Spirit of God if we are to see any fruitful disciple making. Can you put that on the screen? This is amazing. It's a statement on what we believe about the Holy Spirit. Is someone on slide? There we go. Listen to this. We believe that the Holy Spirit in all that he does glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there's another way of saying making disciples, right? Taking someone in darkness and turning them into a person who from the heart glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what the Holy Spirit does. He takes everything Jesus accomplished to save us that would do nothing for us if we didn't then respond to it appropriately. So the Holy Spirit helps apply that salvation to us so that we become people who glorify the Lord Jesus Christ from the heart and with our lives. And how does he do that? Well, look, it starts with this. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of its guilt. In our hardness of heart and our blindness and and, and the, the back of our hand that we've turned to God, the Holy Spirit is able to get into that part of our heart and and make us realize that we're sinful and that we're guilty and that that's not okay. And the Holy Spirit regenerates sinners. That's that fancy word for he, he makes them alive again. Like Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy made you alive together with Christ. The Holy Spirit does that. Keep going. What else does he do? In the Holy Spirit, you're baptized into union with Christ. He's not talking about, that's not talking about water baptism, but what water baptism is is a picture of. This spiritual reality where when a person turns from their sin in faith toward Christ, the Holy Spirit unites us with Christ in such a way that we die to our sin with him and we're raised to walk in newness of life. The Holy Spirit brings about that spiritual inward transformation of the heart. It's through the Holy Spirit that we're adopted as heirs in the family of God. I love that in the New Testament, adoption and being born aren't good enough by themselves to be illustrations of becoming a disciple. You have to have both. We're not only outside of the family of God and he gives us his name and makes us his children, truly, but in 1 John, John says when he adopts us, he sends the spirit of his son, the seed, like seed into our hearts so that we cry, Abba, Father, so that we experientially see ourselves more and more as true children of God. The Holy Spirit does that. What else does he do? He indwells us. He he, he occupies and resides in our heart, not our pumping blood organ, but the the center of our being, who we are. The part of us that makes decisions and loves things and hates things. 
The Holy Spirit takes up residence there with desires that compete against our sinful desires. And increasingly, as we sow seed to the Spirit, like Galatians says, the Spirit's desires grow larger in our hearts and sin's desires grow smaller. What else does the Holy Spirit do? Well, he illuminates, he renews our minds, he helps us understand the word of God more and more and know Jesus through the scriptures more and more. He shines light on the truth for us. What else does he do? Well, he guides us. He actually helps prompt us to walk in the way that we should walk and not walk in the ways that we shouldn't walk. What else does he do? Well, he equips and empowers believers for Christ-like living and service. He gifts individual disciples in unique and complementary ways that work together collectively to accomplish all his purposes. So we get to the end of that statement, and I just want to say, not one of those things are on your job description as a disciple. I talked and prayed with one person after first service and cried a little bit as we talked about situations where we feel like we're, we're, we're trying to scatter seed and we're praying and we're just not seeing anything and feeling like you're just hitting a wall and nothing's being done. And with tears, she just said, it was so good to hear, none of that stuff is on my job description. What's on my job description is scatter seed and prayer, pray, uh, dependently pray to the, to the Holy Spirit to do what only the Holy Spirit can do. God gives growth. So we scatter seed and we pray. I want us to think a little bit about very specifically how do, how, how do we pray, prayer, uh, how do we, back up. What is uh, dependent upon the Holy Spirit prayer for disciple making sound like? And we can be helped. Paul frequently gave prayer requests in his letters. He would ask different churches, hey, would you pray for me? And they're instructive. They help us think about how should we pray for ourselves as we seek to make disciples. Here's just a, a few. We can ask the Spirit to, um, sorry, I lost my place here. We ask the Spirit to give us boldness and courage. Ephesians 6.19, pray that words be given to me in the opening of my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. We can say, Lord, Root the fear of man out of my heart. Help me to fear you above man. Give me a burden for people who are lost and in darkness that's greater than my desire to not look foolish. How else can we pray? Well, Paul asked to pray that the Spirit would lead and guide him into disciple-making opportunities. Colossians 4.3, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. God, open a door of opportunity. You know, I've, I've heard that a lot as I've grown up as a Christian, you know, praying for God to open doors. But I think the way I can tend to think of that, and maybe you too, is I'm not going to do anything until I see a door open, which is maybe why weeks and weeks and weeks can go by and I don't have one gospel conversation with someone that doesn't know Jesus. I'm just waiting for an open door. I don't think that's the way Paul was praying God open a door. I think Paul was going around and knocking on every door he saw and saying, God, open a door. God, open a door. And then one would open and he'd walk into it. I think that, that that's how we pray that prayer is we scatter seed and as we're doing it, we say, okay, Lord, this is now I'm mixing my metaphors, which Scott Rosencrantz pointed out. You can't uh, mix metaphors without breaking a few eggs. 
But like the seed analogy, it's scattering, scattering, scattering seed and then praying, Lord, cause one of these seeds to spring up or more. How else can we pray? We can ask the Spirit to help us proclaim God's word with clarity. We can say, God, I feel very inarticulate. I feel like I struggle to to be clear. I see other people talk about Jesus and and, and share the gospel, and it comes so naturally, and I feel so... Listen to what Paul asked. Even Paul, pretty eloquent guy. Colossians 4.4, pray that I might make the message clear, which is how I ought to speak. Maybe some of Paul's clarity is because God answered that prayer, Right? wasn't that he was just naturally gifted. Okay, but what about other prayer? How do we pray for those that we are wanting to make disciples, either people we want to see become disciples or, we'll start there. How do we pray for God to make new disciples? Here's one way. I love this little prayer request, 2 Thessalonians 3.1. Paul says, pray that the word of the Lord would speed ahead and be honored. If you think about that last little phrase and what we're asking God to do when I'm saying, God, so we're scattering seed, but God, would, would you cause that seed, that word to be honored? That's asking the Holy Spirit to do those things we just read, to convict of sin and to regenerate the heart and to illuminate and guide. And we pray for one another in our discipleship. You know, Paul has some beautiful prayers in his epistles. He not only tells these churches all the time how constantly he prays for them, but sometimes he just starts writing out, listen, this is the kind of thing I'm praying for you. In fact, quick book recommendation. If you've never read it, D.A. Carson has a short little book that used to have the, the, the worst title for telling you what the book is about. It was called A Call to Spiritual Reformation. What would you guess that book's about? If you would guess that book is about praying with Paul, you'd be right. Doesn't sound like it though. So now they've uh, renamed it. It's called Praying with Paul, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. But he just works through in Ephesians and Colossians and and, uh, I think 1 Thessalonians, extended prayers of Paul for Christians to grow in the Lord and unpacks those and helps us understand and pray those more. But let me just read one of them. Colossians 1, 9 through 12. He says, We've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So again, asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate and enlarge the hearts of Christian for Jesus so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That's asking the Holy Spirit to to do that guiding work in, in a believer's life so that they might bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. We're back to the the mind and the will again, that they'd be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That prayer ends asking the Holy Spirit to empower for patient and persevering faithfulness as disciples, which we need, which is the last point I want to hit. Disciples are made through patient perseverance. That's why Paul prayed that these Christians would have endurance and patience with joy because it's a long process and we're not home yet. We're still waiting for Jesus to come back. Look back at the parable. The farmer sleeps and rises night and day and the earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, and then the full grain in the ear. It's a process. We know this is how things grow. You don't plant a seed and all of a sudden, fruit-bearing tree just merges. But it it happens in stages, little by little, by often unobservable degrees. Can you put that picture up of spud and tater tot? 
a few years ago, Lily and Levi were doing a little home you know, science experiment with pota- potatoes. They each put their potato in the jar of water. I don't know if you can see it, but yeah, spud is on the right, tater tots on the left. Put them in the same kind of jar, same water, same time, put them in the same sun, all that. A little different story. Spud over there is bursting. He's, it, it, Spud and tater tots sort of remind me of Caleb Parker and me when it comes to facial hair ability to grow. <laughs> <laughs> I just came across an old picture on Facebook recently of Caleb's beard at his absolute longest a few years ago. Anyway, it was kind of like Spud. But anyway, I digress. But same potatoes, same water, same sunlight, same location, different timeline. And the same is true with us in our walk with Christ, in our maturing with Christ. And we need to be patient with ourselves. We need to be patient with one another. We need to persevere in, in ministry. It doesn't always happen. We, so in the, far, in, the, in the parable case, he rises and sleeps day and night. That doesn't mean he doesn't do anything else. He keeps planting and watering, I'm sure, and tending the garden and, and getting, you know, kicking out pests. But he's not worried in this parable. It's, it's not a stressed out farmer. He puts his head on the pillow and he gets up the next day and he does it all over again. Why? There's a patient perseverance that farming takes and the same is true with disciple making. I want to illustrate this with a beautifully timed email from one of our Grace partners this last week. I won't name them, but uh, they've served in Africa for years. They serve with an unreached people group. And their goal, their desire, their prayer is to make disciples and Lord willing one day even establish churches among this unreached people group. And they sent this email this week about something that happened in their backyard. But uh, I, I think it's the wife who had writ- written this email. It sounds like her writing, but beautifully made this observation about what happened and applied it to the way we persevere in prayer. I want to read it for us as an example to us um, as, as we conclude here. Listen. She said, Dear friends, it happened at 6 a.m. Thursday morning. Just as we were getting up, we heard the sound of something sliding and scraping and then a loud thud. We expected it was something at our neighbor's, but when our son ran out in the yard after breakfast, his surprise yell meant the noise had come from inside our own yard. I quickly went out to see what could be so shocking to find that the wall at the back of our yard had collapsed. As it turns out, the brick wall had been constructed with no foundation, and the ground underneath it compressed, and the wall had slowly been tilting inward until it all just gave way and crashed down in a heap of debris. Thus began what will likely be a two-week rebuild project, which is no small feat in the midst of rainy season. But listen to her observation. This significant disruption in our daily lives has led me to consider another wall that has a far greater impact all around us. It often feels to us like the wall of Islam is immovable here. Every now and then we have interactions with people and we think we detect a crack in the wall and then nothing happens and the wall just remains. You know, we were with other Grace Partners this summer who were home who serve in another Muslim-dominant country and they were telling us similar stories where the wall just feels impenetrable. But then she says, but immovable walls can come down. Parentheses, think Joshua 6. And as someone, uh, sometimes what brings them down is not a direct impact with a wrecking ball, but as in the case of the wall in our yard, an almost undetectable erosion at the foundation. Then one day, seemingly without cause, the wall crashes down. I don't know if this analogy explains what's happening here or will happen here, but 
we can be encouraged to pray all the more that the walls enclosing the hearts of people would come crashing down. And listen to two of her prayer requests. These are our prayer requests, Grace, us too, for, prayer, for perseverance in sharing the gospel with those around us and for a mighty work of his spirit to bring the walls down which are keeping these people trapped in darkness. It's very basic. Word, prayer, patience. Word, prayer, patience, 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 <laughs> patience. Word, prayer, and God's kingdom grows. 